When I was in Downing Street, one of the key aspects that I was looking at when it came to entrepreneurialism was how could we improve the UK's entrepreneurial cycles? We are on arguably about the third entrepreneurial cycle in the UK, compared to Silicon Valley, who's on its sixth or seventh, and New York that's probably on its fourth or fifth. There is a challenge for how much governments can do to improve these cycles and make them happen quicker. But one of the key things that always stood out of why these cycles end up becoming quicker and more efficient is because those that have been on the journey are able to lend their support to others that are just starting out on it. And that is one of the most valuable assets that you can create in an entrepreneurial ecosystem. It is incredibly tough being a founder of a company that is growing fast. Whilst we often lionize the excitement of it and the bravery that these people go on, it is incredibly daunting. And so as part of this ecosystem, as a Downing Street advisor, I was part of the ICE entrepreneurial community, which is where I first met our guest today, Digby, who founded the company Feastin. We met on a James Bond themed weekend away with lots of other entrepreneurs who act as a support network for one another going through it. Being able to swap tips and tricks about various different processes, whether it be hiring, marketing, product market fit. And it's been a huge support to entrepreneurs as they have gone through some of their toughest challenges over the last 18 months. It was founded by some entrepreneurs from the first or second entrepreneurial wave. And it is one of the key reasons why the UK continues to grow more entrepreneurial cycles at a quicker rate. It's because of communities like ICE. And so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Digby onto the show today. Digby, we're asking everyone in the second series to tell us about your journey into the world of work. What was your work experience and what was your first paid job? So my first paid job was as a actually working in catering. I worked behind the bar at weddings, which I very specifically chose to work behind the bar because that's where you got paid the largest tips. Because at the end of a shift, it tends to be the case that the uh, father of the groom would be really drunk and would decide that the person who gave him the alcohol was the person who'd provided it for free and would start tipping you quite heavily. So that was, that was my first proper paid job. And what about work experience? At uni, I was broke and really wanted to go to festivals for free. And I kind of worked out that the best way of doing that was to start a music blog and then massively overinflate the readership and, and kind of the scale of it. And that kind of led to me actually traveling kind of around the world to go to festivals for free and kind of cover media, act as part of the media in that sense. That then kind of led to me writing some articles for The Guardian and which fed back into that nice kind of positive feedback loop of people therefore assuming I actually knew what I was doing, which then led on to me actually getting my first proper jobs in kind of the events and music sector. And of course, you did a degree in politics as well, which I won't hold against you. Yeah, so I, I was fortunate in that I kind of always knew I wanted to work in events and music or something in that kind of public space. But I was aware that there wasn't a huge number of degrees that really felt suited to that. So I decided to actually study what I loved because I thought I'd never actually want to work in it. Apologies for that. <laughs> I decided to kind of spend those four years really, really looking at something that I thought would be interesting and kind of trying to learn more about like, the kind of political space, which I loved. I absolutely had an amazing time at university studying that. And so tell us what Feast It does because it's you describe it as a e-commerce company which is revolutionizing hospitality which has obviously had a huge challenge through the pandemic 
Yeah, so the last 12 months have been very interesting. So the way we look at it is when we launched in 2017, we kind of had a fairly simple mission, which was to build the operating system to power better events globally. And what we are at our core is a two-sided marketplace that lets anyone discover, plan, and book their dream event, whilst empowering the millions of small and medium businesses that are the kind of backbone of the events industry. And for us, what that looks like is a platform where we pull together the top 10% of suppliers across the UK, whether that be a street food trader or Soho House Group or Nobu or independent photographers and florists. And we put them onto a single platform where anyone organizing any event of any scale is able to easily discover them and book them. And then on the reverse, for the suppliers, what we're trying to do is build them an acquisition channel. The way we looked at it was that about 85% of people, when it comes to planning events, start their search online. Yet the tens of thousands of small businesses in the UK who are events businesses are unaware of of how to be digital first. Yeah, then there are there artisans at the product that they produce rather than understanding how SEO works or how to run a Google AdWords campaign. And so for us, what we really want to do is give them a platform where for free, they were able to kind of really discover all these amazing events, bid for them and actually just match them. So really, we're just a matchmaking tool. We help find the best events in the country and match them with the best suppliers. So if you're planning an event, and I know you do lots of different ones, weddings, but you also do like the Hackney Half as well. Coming at it from that consumer point, if you want to add something a bit extra to an event or if you think of it as a wedding in terms of you're trying to organise a band, you're trying to organise a bar, potentially you might be trying to organise different types of games or, or just something to make it kind of different. And we see this in lots of events planning, people trying to make it a bit different. That is a lot of, of what Feast it is trying to do, isn't it? It's making that easy to do in terms of comparisons and so forth. Yeah, exactly. So the idea was just a place that, that we could bring together everyone who's fantastic. Yeah, it's a complete breadth across the entire spectrum. So we let your imagination run wild. And you, we're a place where, for us, our very core of what we wanted to build was something where discovery was key, where that's often where people get stuck. Most people who are planning an event, whether that be the head of the fund committee for a company or a bride planning her wedding or someone planning their kids bar mitzvah, most people in this sector don't really know what's available to them. So that really creates a single portal where they could find all these cool things and really, really hone into the niche where, and our logic was always saying, you know, there are some street food traders who are making Indian food that would be better than anything you've ever had in a restaurant. And it's go for someone incredibly niche and someone who's really, really specifically brilliant at the thing that they do. And yeah, so for us, it's really about that artisanal business and promoting them to people who are just trying to discover what's out there. Yeah. So it's been an interesting journey. I think kind of to date, the smallest event we've done for about two people and the large we've done was we did all the food and drink at London Pride for a couple of years in a row, which is about 1.5 million people. So it's been a fairly large spread of size and kind of scale of who uses us and what for. That's amazing. You know, expand a little bit on the last year because obviously the pandemic has been really tough for the events and hospitality industry. But prior to that, I always had this argument that it was one of the most interesting growing parts of the UK economy and the global economy, frankly, is the fact that it was becoming much easier to put on events because of the modern day rails of the internet, etc. And actually, it meant that that whole kind of experience side of the economy as well was going to be something that, that grew massively. So I'd love to hear about the challenges of the last year, but where you see it going over the next three to four years as well. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good question. So kind of prior to covid I think if you think about experiences in the UK, it is one of those things that we're globally known for. Everyone in the world has heard of Glastonbury. We're known for our live music and our theatre and our parties. You know, Notting Hill Carnival is the largest 
street party in Europe. Globally, this is something we're incredibly known for. And it is one of those sectors that we are a world leader in. And it's also interesting in that we're seeing as a global megatrend prior to COVID, which was that millennials and in Gen Z actually value experience over material possessions. So we've seen this year on year growth in spend on experience and experience has been festivals or theatre or travel, but across the board. This is something, this is a sector that people really value more and it's something that people will kind of forever grow into. So that's kind of the world where it was prior to COVID. Where Feast It was, we were kind of on track to have our best of a year. We were growing at about 250% versus 2019 at the start of 2020. And we're kind of going up to a fairly kind of large institutional round. We were probably going to do our first million pound month in April of 2020. And instead we did about 9,000 pounds. So I don't think there's many businesses that had a 99% drop in sales. And it, it was a complete wipe, wiped off. I mean, globally, events were banned and have pretty much remained banned for nearly 18 months now. And most parts of hospitality or most other sectors had a semi-reopening or you know somewhat limited reopening. But really, events have been something that's just been pretty much totally shut. There were weddings. There was a brief period last year that 30-person weddings were reintroduced and six-person weddings. But fundamentally, this in-person experience was really, really shut. However, the thing that for us was just, we were very bullish on this. And we kind of said that fundamentally, this is mega trend leading into COVID, but also the world I want to live in is one in which people create memories together and that physical experience is really important. That was really always been our kind of thesis on where we see the world moving. And it kind of was really, really demonstrated when the UK government announced its lockdown roadmap at the middle of February. And we just saw this complete flooding of return. The FT is estimating that this year, even though there's only basically half a year that events can take place, they're expecting twice as many weddings in 2021 as they had in 2019. Their Live Nation, who's kind of one of the world's largest promoters, announced something like 180,000 festival tickets were sold to UK events in the first 24 hours of that lockdown announcement. I mean, you try and find a ticket to anything this summer and there's kind of you're completely out of luck unless you booked it months ago. Equally, you can't get a reservation at restaurants. All of these physical experiences that we knew were very important to COVID, but really actually being in lockdown remind us that these are very, very central to the human experience. So for us, it was a really interesting year and a very testing year. And now that it's behind me, I can reflect on it in a much more positive sense. But going forward, it just really demonstrated that this is part of the human experience. We are an incredibly interconnected species, and that's a really, really big part of what we take pleasure from in life. I'm feeling more positive than ever about where the experience and the event economy is going to go over the next kind of three or four years. And how important was the ICE community and or other entrepreneurial networks to you during that time? Because it was an intense period, particularly when your revenues dropped by 99%. Yeah, I don't know quite how to describe the emotions. So we were literally about to start around the funding, I think, one week prior to when the lockdown was really announced. So you kind of have your revenues dropped to effectively zero and your entire roadmap that you plan for the next three years of your business just completely upended. And then obviously, a lot of the investment community, you know, remained really excited about us as a long-term project, but I think fairly rightly said that they'd pick up the phone again when events were something that were not illegal. So on that side... We were really reliant on it. I'm incredibly fortunate. We have very, very good investors. We actually were able to bridge round within about seven days and they kind of really supported that vision. But a community, whether that be the people who have invested in your business or the friends in that space or communities like ICE are just completely essential. I spent more time on the phone to my competitors in the first 15 days of lockdown than I had in the previous five years combined. 
people who we were complete adversaries with, where we were talking to incredibly regularly and genuinely being really supportive. I think especially something like the event sector where we were all feeling the pain and we all pivoted to virtual events and we all did things, but there was this really kind of total industry lockdown, which really forced you to kind of get together and connect and actually just someone to share your agonies with. And it's really important. I think you kind of touched on it in your introduction, but you know, it is really lonely at the top to a certain extent. So having people that you can share those experiences with, even if it's just them to tell you that they're as miserable as you are, is really, really important thing to be able to access. I'm going to edit this out if I heard it wrong, but did you say Coldplay as part of your investors? Yeah, Guy Berryman, who's uh, a member of Coldplay, was one of our yeah, investors, which is one of the most intense meetings I've ever had. It was fantastic. He's a really, really, really lovely guy. He's incredibly supportive with us, but still can't get free Glastonbury tickets. So, <laughs> so what's the point, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, what's the point? What's the point of doing any of this? <laughs> Back to where it all began at your student union days. <laughs> and tell us a bit about kind of your funding and how many people you're employing today. Yeah, so to date, we've raised just shy of 5 million. We've done that across a couple of rounds. The, our cap table ranges from the former chairman of the Hutt Group to Coldplay to venture capital funds. Um, we've, with current teams, about 30. We were 35 prior to COVID, went down to around 20 during COVID. And then now we're about 30. And we're, we've got a roadmap to employ about another 40 people over the course of 2021. 20, um, so we've We'll, we're, we'll aim to be somewhere between 60 and 70 by the end of this year. What roles are you hiring for? I mean, you talk about megatrend Gen Z wanting more experiences. What roles are you hiring for over the next year or so that you're planning to? And is there a particular role that you're hiring for that five years ago when you founded the business, you would have thought to yourself, I never would have expected to be making this hire today? It's a really good question. So I think the thing, the lesson that we've learned over the last few years is really working on this thesis of hiring for skills as opposed to for a lack of weaknesses. And I think when you first start the business, to a certain degree, you need some generalists because everything needs to be done. So you need people who are able to do every single kind of can fill lots of different roles. And then as you scale, actually, you realize more and more that what you really want are people who are just completely obsessed with one small niche and one small part of your business. So for us, it's a real range. We've got everything from kind of heads of people roles to roles fully focused on making our supplier community love us. How can we build a platform that works for them and that they are a pure advocate just for our suppliers and almost their role is to be the devil's advocate within the business so that everything that we do, they're challenged on it. Equally, it's important to have that on the customer side. A lot of the roles are very growth marketing heavy, which I think when I started the business, I would have had no idea what that really meant. At the beginning of implementing a tribe process for how we structure the team, meaning that rather than having a marketing department and a sales department and a product department, you have departments that have skills from across all of those sectors, but focus on one aspect of the business. So for us, it might be the very top of the funnel. So when customers come onto our website, what is the conversion rate that they have on our platform? So how likely are they to submit an inquiry with us? And you might have a department that's just focused on that one issue. So you'll have a marketer, a product person, two developers, a copywriter, just focus on that one issue. And it, what it lets you do is just become total experts of one thing and really hone into the areas of the business that actually are where customers are most interacting and putting all of your focus into that. And the idea being that what you then create is a space in which people can flexibly flow between those. So you could be transferred, you know, every month, everyone's been transferred between those departments or every couple of months, which means that you're creating much, much more cross-departmental 
work life. And people are really becoming experts of everything and are meet are working with people across the entire business. So that's the structure that we're kind of aiming for. And for us, it means a lot of really niche hires. So a lot of direct partnership leads. There's people we're looking to hire focused purely on launching new verticals, as well as data analytics and kind of content writers. So yeah, it's exciting. There's a lot of titles. I think if you told me I'd have hired a data analyst four years ago, that would have slightly thrown me off. It's an amazing number of roles there. I mean, how do you structure it, particularly when you're going to go through so much growth over the next year? How do you structure something like that, particularly in a world where we've grown so fast remotely? The remote side of it's actually made some aspects of structuring things easier. I was not an organized person prior to COVID, and then COVID's forced me to become an organized person. So we run the entire business through a project management software called Asana, which lots of people will be fairly familiar with. And for us, that lets everyone in the company can see every single project that's ongoing. And then every single cross-departmental project lives on a single board where everyone can be part of like an open conversation. And the idea is to really create a culture of cross-pollination. So, you know, we have junior sales roles who've just joined us all alongside COOs and heads of marketing are all part of a single dialogue around every issue. Everyone can tag each other in and have a conversation. That can lead to getting bogged down. Things can fall off people's roadmap if you're not careful. But when it works, it really is creating this total cross-departmental conversation where everyone's super aligned. And that's one aspect of it. The other thing that we're really fortunate about is that we literally work in food, booze and parties. So the people who work here tend to be quite interested in what we're building. And that's meant that we have a culture where actually people really are pulling in the same direction, which means that you can leave people to be fairly autonomous. You can instill a lot of faith in them. And actually, you're more often than not really rewarded back with actually the work that's been done means that, yeah, that, that's really paid back. I was just saying in the previous episode that Tim Cook talked about the sort of future of the economy being through education, entrepreneurialism, and entertainment which strikes me you're kind of almost at the point between all of those. How do you, I mean, we've all had such challenges through the pandemic in terms of trying to divide work and personal life, which is always a challenge for an entrepreneur at the best of times. But particularly when, as you say, your business is focused in the entertainment side of things. So when you go to events, you must always be, oh, what are they doing here? How's this operating? And so on. How do you try and relax and unwind away from all of that? Because it must be an intense existence that you find yourself in. Yeah, it's been a very interesting 12 months. I would say the one advantage of the last 12 months is actually there's a lot less work to do. The advantage of no parties is that a company that focuses on throwing parties has <laughs> is less busy. So on that side, that, that was an upside of COVID. It is incredibly intense. And I, th- I think one of the biggest frustrations of it is that actually our calendar runs almost directly opposite of everyone else's. So when everyone else wants to go on holiday is actually when we're at the busiest because what they want to go on holiday to are the things that we're producing. So that actually, you know, summer is the busiest months and winter is the quietest. Yeah, I, I'm a huge reader. I actually, I think a lot of the startup world and a lot of entrepreneurs really, really talk about the benefits of reading business books, which I agree with, but I actually also think it's really important to read, you know, novels and actually read things that are completely outside of your work interests. Otherwise, every time you read a business book or something focused on the sector you operate within, as you kind of said, you're always going to have one eye on how that could affect your business, how you could implement that. And actually, it's really important to read things that are completely outside of that area of interest. What's the best book you've read lately? Because you know I'm going to ask that later anyway. Yeah, I'm just about about to finish a book called Red Strangers, which is about the first white settlers arriving in Kenya. And it's written from a Kikuyu perspective, which is kind of the local tribe 
just outside of Nairobi. I actually grew up in East Africa and I grew up literally where the book sat. And it's been really, really interesting. My family's history with that country will always come from the other side of it. So it's, something, it's, it's been something amazing to read something that's kind of the, that perspective. So I would really, really highly recommend it. It's absolutely yeah, been a brilliant lockdown read. That sounds fantastic. And so coming to the sort of government audience side of things, you know, we have a lot of ministers and policymakers that listen to the show. What is your advice, I guess, more broadly as an entrepreneur in terms of how we build back better? And then it would also be great to hear something from the hospitality side of things as well, because I think it's a huge industry in the UK that sometimes we don't take as seriously as we could do, perhaps in government. So yeah, I'd love to hear your broad thoughts on building back better, but also specifically on the hospitality industry too. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So kind of tackle the hospitality part of it first. So Boris Johnson valued the events industry at 90 billion in commons a couple of months ago, which places it something, it's nearly two times the size of the domestic tourism industry. So it's a completely huge sector. I think that Broadly in hospitality, we need to face up to the fact that there's been a double whammy of Brexit and COVID. And with hospitality, the issue that Brexit's created is one around pricing of the produce, but you know, that can be solved through increases in pricing of goods. But actually, the other is that combined with COVID meant that a huge amount of migrant labor that really is the backbone of this entire sector actually, you know, returned home and looks very unlikely to come back to the UK. And They've already started. Over the next 12 months, you're going to have a huge number of stories about a complete lack of workforce. There's going to be a lot of news around the fact that there are not going to be the people to fill jobs, whether it be in cafes or caterers. It's the number one complaint that our suppliers have, even the small independent ones are really worried about how they're going to get the staffing together to do the events they need to do this summer. So on that side of it, the hospitality sector is going to need some solution. I'm not sure I actually necessarily have the answer to what that is, whether it's significantly easier to get visas. You know, if we put blockers in, the points-based system on immigration is fine if you accept that you're not going to have anyone to make your lattes and you're not going to have anyone to actually work in almost the entire of the hospitality sector. So then there needs, there needs to be some form of a solution on that side of it. The other is kind of a more immediate problem that exists within hospitality that kind of needs to be resolved in the next few months. And that's around event insurance. And it's something that there's been a lot of news about. So that we really championed last year, and it's continued to be a, a lot of the news from the festival sector at the moment, which is that it's incredibly expensive to produce large events. And without some form of guarantee of whether the roadmap will go ahead, it becomes incredibly expensive if those events then get cancelled. And lots of other sectors, so the film sector and kind of other sectors, have been given government-backed insurance schemes that let them underwrite that risk of putting on these large events. And I think it's something that the hospitality sector and the event sector, particularly the festival sector, are really, really direly in need of. And it's something that, you know, as I kind of mentioned, this is something we're globally famous for. These are This is something that we are a world exporter in. There are a lot of businesses will go under unless there's kind of immediate support given there. So that, that's kind of on the broad, kind of on the hospitality side of it. On that, though, I do think it's such an important point that you say there that we are a world leader in this industry when it comes to events. And you made the point earlier as well in Glastonbury and so on. You know, This is something the United Kingdom does incredibly well, and we should be proud of it. And a lot of people come here to learn what we do 
on this and it's events of you know even down to football teams and so on right we take our sport incredibly seriously you know somebody was saying to me the other day about how you know you can just turn up in Germany and get a ticket to a Bundesliga match and isn't that great it is to a degree and I wish that could be the case but also the fact that you can't get a Premier League ticket in the UK for example is a real example of like how popular and how in demand it is and we've always taken those events you know we've always loved our events and going to them and I sometimes don't think we appreciate just what a world leader we are in it so I do think that's an important point to to say it's also worth noting that we're an exporter there are events in Croatia and Germany and kind of across the entire Europe that are organized by UK-based festival companies you know this is something that we are really really well famous for so much so that we're going to markets that have their own domestic players and creating events there as well I mean no country has a summer calendar like the UK's when it comes to from film festivals through to music festivals, through to sporting events, through to, you know, whatever it might be. No one has a calendar quite like us when it comes to kind of live experiences. Yeah, we can treat culture as a given because we assume it will never go away. But really, it's, you know, it's a sector that employs hundreds of thousands of people. And it's something that needs to be cherished and treated as a, any other industry would be and as any other sector would be. It's also a challenge to appreciate your own culture when, like, in terms of comparing it to other cultures. I think that's a massive problem that every country faces in the world, frankly. But I do, as we've said, the UK is a very cultural and event-centric place. So, yeah, tell us your broader thoughts before we agree too much more. Yeah, no, yeah, no, 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 yeah. So, kind of more broadly, I, I think it's it's something you definitely touched on a lot, which is, is education, right? And I think that. This is coming from someone who went to Russell Group University and studied the humanities, so this is going to sound really oxymoronical. But fundamentally, as long as government is exclusively run by people who went to Oxbridge and studied humanities, there's always going to be a disconnect between understanding about later life education and actually vocational education as well. And I love what I studied, and I think it's incredibly important as a country, and I think it's incredibly important for our economy that we have people who are able to study for the love of studying. But I also think it's really important to note that there's only so many people we need to be political lobbyists or work in politics. And actually, there's a huge number of... that. Yeah, (laughs) And at the moment, we just have a completely huge skill gap. The cost of hiring a developer in this country has increased by 30 or 40% over the last four or five years. Where our skill base is and where our economy is going are just completely disconnected. You know, again, we could bring that back to Brexit and say, is there, you know, there is some of that skill gap is because of a lot of European-based developers potentially moving to Lisbon as a, versus London because actually it's just more difficult to get here. Yeah, but let's train our own then. I mean, that like, we, we can have this. <laughs> exactly. We, so I think the problem we're having is that it's just that, that it's just incredibly hard to access, and it's it, you know it's something where going to a coding school and later in life career change costs thousands of pounds. I have friends who are retrained as developers after working in different sectors prior to it, and that's something they've got to pay out of pocket. Whilst if they wanted to go, if they wanted to do an undergraduate in English literature or politics, they could have got a loan for that. And actually, there's a lot of sense that you know, we're not necessarily supporting the future jobs. And that's because as a country, we do have a near snobbish obsession with a set of certain degrees, right? You know, we think English literature, politics, history, you know, philosophy, etc., are of a higher merit, or we treat them as a being of a higher merit than we do vocational skills, which, you know, that's fantastic. The sector I work in, that's why we have so many phenomenal musicians and actors and such a cultural talent. But it also does mean that we're completely dissuading a lot of the most 
you know, a lot of really, really skilled kids were telling them that it's of more value to go and study, you know, humanity than it is to actually go and study these, gain these skills that are going to really prepare them to the kind of where the economy is at the moment. And I, I don't, I don't have a clear answer on it because I, I want both to be true. I want us to both be a place where everyone has an English literature degree and be a place where everyone is a developer. But I, I definitely think that there is a broad issue here with the skills gap and actually later life training. And I think. People like you and Blair are doing a really good job of it around apprenticeships and kind of pushing that as a form of growth. But I definitely think there needs to be a really deep consideration at the heart of government about how do we want to educate people and what and what do we think of as valuable education? And then how does that align with you know, where we're going to be as an economy and as a country in you know, 15, 20 years from now? I mean, I agree with almost everything you've said there. To stick up for the government because it's still a diehard habit of mine. Like (laughs) they are looking at this and like in the Queen's speech in the last month, they have put kind of skills at the centre of it. Because I agree, we need a proper radical rethink of it. And there is also very much a culture in the UK of the aspiration of going to university. And then also once you've completed your undergraduate degree, that sort of being it in terms of education. I just think is is so misplaced. I also think it's misplaced to necessarily funnel people to university at such a, a young age. You know, it doesn't hurt to go and get a bit more experience out in the world and then work out what you want to do. I think it's important as well because, look, this is partly why I started the whole podcast, right, is that careers advice just isn't great, partly because the people that are giving it, careers were very different. And that's you know why we're trying to get people like yourself and other entrepreneurs on because the jobs are changing so fast and the skills required are just completely different and people often turn to their families and i do want to come on to this to kind of finish because people turn to their families or friends of families to get careers advice a lot of the time because it's not that great necessarily in in schools and you know even universities and it's so important to hear from the people who are actually doing it. And when I go and speak at schools or do anything at the moment in that side of things, I just say, if you can be a data scientist or you can be a software engineer, get those skills under your belt. You know, even if you're going to go and do a job on the creative side, we've had entrepreneurs coming on who are hiring people solely for TikTok. And, you know, that seems alien to people from a couple of years ago, but it's such an interesting place. But if you can get those hard technical skills, it does make a real difference. But they will need to be updated every few years as well, which is a challenge. Just on the point of family entrepreneurialism, the whole argument of are entrepreneurs born or made, etc. I'd love to hear a bit about your kind of family history and, and yeah, were there entrepreneurial genes in it? Yeah, um, that's a good question. So, uh, yeah, I was quickly, yeah, totally agree with everything you just said. So on on kind of entrepreneurial family, yes, I'm really fortunate to come from an incredibly entrepreneurial family. So my mum is a board games designer. She's designed about 50 different board games, ranging from games like Ex, Ex Libris and Anagram through to kind of the most, most recognised as Jenga. So she left school without an A-level is completely, you know, this is what she's put her entire life to, is always done her own things and always built her own businesses. So that was definitely something I kind of grew up with. Um, and then equally, my, my dad's actually an academic. He works in biomed and has always kind of been slightly involved in like the spin-out scene. So taking things they discover in the labs and spinning them out into kind of medical devices. So that it's been a really big part of my family. I don't think it's a coincidence. My sister actually became a board game designer as well. So is, is an entrepreneur in her oh, own really? as well. Yeah, so I think, I think they're the only mother-daughter board game designers 
in the country. But that kind of feels like the kind of thing where it's such a niche thing that it probably is true just by pure by pure coincidence rather than anything else. So yeah, I, I definitely I definitely think that entrepreneurialism is something that's it's it's something you're given a huge leg up by if it's something that it's, it's part of your family. Not necessarily because of there's also things that gives you access to skills and it gives something that's encouraged. I think for me the main thing that it gave me that was a huge advantage was my parents made it really clear it wasn't as big a risk and I think there's always this there can be often be a language of bravery around entrepreneurialism which I, I totally agree with if you've got a kid and you know you have a mortgage and there is a huge risk in actually quitting starting your own business I, I was 24 when I started Feast It and I, I didn't really own a huge amount so there wasn't a huge amount to lose and I think that was something that my parents were definitely really really positive about I was just saying like this will be the way they described to me was effectively starting your own company is like an MBA that you get paid so therefore it was a really logical part of tertiary education for me was to go off and start a company because worst case it was a huge failure I'd walk away having learned a huge amount about why I failed but ultimately it would also probably succeed and then it did did pay initially a very small salary but it did pay a salary rather than university which obviously would have cost a huge amount yeah well I think that's um I think that's true I think it's hard for particularly generations that have come before you know entrepreneurialism is much more of a well I was going to say defined career path I mean it's not defined by its very nature but is a much more established career path now in terms of where people can go but yeah to get that encouragement at a a young age must have made a huge difference yeah and founding Jenga is um (laughs) is is amazing not a family in the uh in the country that hasn't heard of that and so as a final question and I'm sort of slightly um springing this on you I didn't mention it before but we I just brought it in last week which is we're asking people to pass the mic to another entrepreneur that might not have had as much coverage yet or something like that and yeah that we might interview in a future episode so we'd love the thoughts I noticed you are an investor in Lick which is getting quite a bit of traction at the moment yeah yeah so Lucas from Lick is brilliant he was one of our first ever investors. And so I worked with him as him being an investor in Feastit for the last four years. As soon as he said that he was going to start Lick, I, it was something I wanted to jump on immediately because I just knew him and Sam, who also actually Sam was a member of our marketing team before he joined Lick, who's the other co-founder. It's a phenomenal business that is going to be, it's the next Dulux. It's going to reinvent the entire home decorating sector. They're, they're going to do what May.com for furniture did they're going to do for the home decorating team. So I, th- I think they're phenomenal. I think they're building something really, really special. And the, the growth they've had, I think they launched in March last year and they've just complete rocket ship ever since. I mean, yeah, Lucas is a really interesting guy. So I would very highly recommend having a chat with him. Definitely. Well, I will rely on you to put us in touch at some stage. It'd be great to have them on. Definitely, yeah. More than happy to. Thanks so much for your time, Digby. It's been amazing to hear your journey and really looking forward to you being such a big part of this evolving mega trend of the experience economy over the next few years. Cheers. It was really, really good fun. Thanks a lot for having me, Jimmy. A thank you to our partners for the second series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, the Octopus Group, who make this show possible. There are lots of companies who claim to be entrepreneurial and support entrepreneurs, but Octopus really live and breathe it. So much so that if you are one of Octopus's 750 employees and you have your own startup idea, Octopus will give you the time off to go and start the business and keep your old job open for you. They call it their springboard program. If you want to hear more about it, it's worth checking out the third episode in this series with the founder, Chris Hulat. 
He talks us through how Octopus began as a fund management company, but is now expanding into lots of other areas, such as Octopus Energy, and how healthcare is one of the big areas that can be disrupted. Thank you for listening to this episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. The mission of this podcast is to help inform people about the fantastic jobs that are being created and trying to present that information in an as accessible format as possible. I'd therefore really appreciate it if you could send this episode to someone who you think might find it useful and interesting. It doesn't have to be just for them. It could be that they work at a school, college, or just interested in the future of our economy. If you could rate us on iTunes, that would be great. And of course, we are on social media platforms at Jimmy's Jobs. We are particularly trying to grow it on LinkedIn. Thanks to the team at Particle 6 for their editing skills, and thanks to George Dick Cleland for the artwork.